Insert gay card. I'm feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Wish I knew how queens isn't. I'm gay. You can't love yourself. How in the hell you gonna love somebody else? Can I get an amen? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Gay card revoked. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Gay Card Revoked. I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm your cruise director, Robbie Roselle. Today is Designing Women. And remember, we asked you to watch two episodes, Killing All the Right People and The Beauty Contest. Both of those are on Hulu and Amazon. So if you've not watched these episodes, I encourage you to stop us, pause us, go watch those episodes, and then come back and listen to us talk about it. But also on the way back, make sure that you've made a drink. Today's drink is called Georgia On My Mind. Robbie, can you say it with a Southern accent so I don't feel so bad about myself? Georgia On My Mind Cocktail. That that was that was Blanche Devereaux on yeah, you're welcome. With, with George. They the police called and I ran and I tripped over the slippers and I said, "Damn you, George!" And they called to tell me he died. George died five different ways on that show, by the way. Well, we all did. Um, so we posted the recipe for you on what this Georgia on my mind cocktail is like, and we have a very special guest with us today. It is the one, the only casting director to the stars, Paul Ruddy from Los Angeles, California. Paul, how are you? Great. Thanks for uh, inviting me to do this today. This is going to be a lot of fun. Welcome to the pod. Yeah. Paul, have you done a podcast before? This is my first. We are popping the pod cherries left and right with this show. Yeah. So to speak. And Paul, we, so to speak. <laughs> now, you know what? That's a punch in your gay card right there. You did a yeah, podcast. In punch. this case, the Georgia peach. Uh, <laughs> You win. As a young gay man growing up, like what shows on television did you find yourself gravitating towards? A lot of the fantasy shows. Uh, yeah, I, I like Bewitched and mm. uh, I Dream of Genie. Yeah, we're and it's, I, I know that's sort of a common thing because it, the, these people were sort of um, hiding something, and they were they were kind of minorities. They had a secret. And, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and but it get, it also empowered them in some way. Um, but and you know, even as a child, you don't realize that you're not thinking that way. So, but the older you get, you start to put pieces together. Robbie, what about you? What TV shows were you watching when you were growing up? Truly, everything like Waylon Flowers and Madam. Uh, I grew up in the '70s and '80s as well. There was like a lot of Mork and Mindy. Uh, if Gary Marshall touched a TV show, I was there. Uh, All in the Family was on on a loop, and a lot of those trashy syndicated shows like Small Wonder. Which I, I, Small I Wonder was Small the most brilliant. Wonder. It's terrible and it's so great. Um, Down to Earth, which Sam Harris, the the Motown singer, created, uh, which I vividly remember. Was down was Down to Earth the one with the twenties made? No. Yes, Is who it... was dead. And she came back to teach the Preston's lessons. Uh, I can still remember that theme song. That's sad. Do you want to sing a little bit for I us? I we... no. <laughs> back down to earth to teach the Preston's lessons. Richard, Lisa, Dwayne, and JJ too. Now she might be a 1980s lady down to earth is quite respectable. Yeah, anyway. Who were your crushes? Who were your TV crushes? Oh, I'll tell you mine right now. I have no shame. Bubba no. from Mama's Family. Who, the actor Alan Kayser, who played Bubba on Mama's Family. When I was like a young boy, I was like, that's it. So, Well, there you, you know. go. The entire series, 1999 on uh, iTunes. <laughs> it is. Bubba I bought it. Mama's Family. For, ju- just for Bubba. The Alex first P. son, Keaton. the first son, Vince. Oh, Alex P. Keaton? Yeah. A conservative? Uh, did you see Michael J. Fox? You would have voted for Reagan to get to have a moment with Alex P. Keaton. Sure, I didn't know anything. So let's talk a little bit about designing women. Now, I do not want to lie. I will tell you right now. I don't really know designing women. Um, Golden Girls was on Lifetime from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. And then at 11 a.m., I had a choice. I could either go over to Unsolved Mysteries or I could watch Designing Women. And I would switch over to Designing, I mean, to, to Unsolved Mysteries. So I am unfamiliar with designing women. So today, my gay card, yes, is in jeopardy. Please, you, you two. made the wrong choice all those years. <laughs> Unsolved Mysteries is never the wrong choice. No, Se- you can Sexy still Robert watch. Stack with that trench coat. Please. Blah, blah. He's at large today. Uh, <laughs> you can Update. watch that right now on Amazon Prime. But yes. designing women, four strong ladies from the South. Are you kidding me? 
So walk us through the, the, pre- the premise of this show. Who was Linda Bloodworth, Thomas? And Paul, you were saying to, to me last night a uh, little bit of the genesis of how this show got together. Can you fill us in on that? Yeah, well, first, I think the show unfairly, I think from the time it came on was in the shadow of Golden Girls because it came on the following season. And I think it was viewed as a, a ripoff of it, even though they were very distinct shows. Sure. They had to be four women, but it was an entirely different dynamic. Um, Linda Bloodworth had done a show for CBS called Filthy Rich. Delta Burke and Dixie Carter were in that show. It was about a rich Southern family. It, I think it lasted like a season and a half. It wasn't on very long. But um, she pitched a show about funny women together just talking, essentially. And, uh, and if you watch the show, it's more like watching a play than actually yeah. a sitcom. There, it's very verbal. It's um, dialogue heavy. It's um, mainly the one set for a lot of the episodes. A lot takes place in their, in their offices, which is a house, basically. Which doubles as, uh, as um, Dixie Carter's home. Right. Yeah. Right. And it was a. It was about a sugar baker and associates. It was four women that ran an interior design company in Atlanta, Georgia. Coming from a casting perspective, it was impeccably cast um, with all pros. And Delta Burke was a uh, former Miss Florida. Uh, Julia was very liberal, outspoken. Um, the show is kind of known for her speeches, and we'll, we'll be talking about that. Arias, yeah. Oh, yeah, the Terminator speeches. And, yeah. really, and what I heard so interesting about Dixie Carter, I did not know this, I was doing a little research on the show, was that she was very conservative. And yeah, she was a registered Republican. And did not really believe a lot of the stuff that Julia Sugarbaker would espouse on a, on a you know, on an episodic basis. So she had a deal with Linda Bloodworth Thomason that for every like liberal speech she had, she had to sing in an episode later on because she liked singing. So that was the trade off. I thought that was so interesting. Why not? It's <laughs> probably how that whole MAME episode happened. And Annie Potts character was uh, Mary Jo, who was... A, a divorcee with kids. But, you know, it's so interesting that you were saying, you know, Annie Potts on this, excuse me, is a divorcee because her child is the center of the first episode we're talking about, which is the beauty contest, right? Uh, which is season one, episode two. So right out right, the gate. Right out the gate. Let's talk a little bit about this episode. Robbie, what are you wearing today? To oh, I'm you- wearing a t-shirt. It's the like an outline of the state of Georgia that says the ninth and the lights went out in Georgia, uh, which is not just a famous song from uh, uh, Vicky on uh, the Vicky Lawrence, show. right? Vicky Lawrence. You mean you mean my grandmother-in-law when I married right. Alan Kayser, who played Bubba? <laughs> yes, uh, but it's uh, very famous because of this, the first of the Terminator speeches on designing women. I love that term, the Terminator speech for her. Mm-hmm. Well, they they reference it in uh, the second episode that we're going to talk about, uh, because Mary Jo says, I wish I could be like you and, and, you know, more like the Terminator. And that's how that that got its name. So then let's talk a little bit about this beauty contest episode, because it's such an iconic episode when you think of designing women, they're making shirts about it. And it happens so early in the run. Why do we like, Robbie, you know, you you were the one who had mentioned designing women and you were the one who selected these episodes. Why do you think the beauty contest is such an important part of this gay card? The show was very much ahead of its time. Like the beauty contest episode was Mm -hmm. like, you know, probably a good 20 years before we started talking about whether beauty contests were sexist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 1986 is when the episode um, was made. Yeah. Yeah. And what I find so interesting about this episode is, is on one hand, it's dealing with two really big issues that I think are so important, which is one, are these beauty contests sexist? And how old should a person be before they get involved? I mean, this is like pre-Jean Benet. This is pre- Right, because- Part of the episode deals with uh, Mary Jo's child has been submitted to a like a junior jo- yeah. contest, right? By Charlene, unbeknownst to her, which is like that's sometimes like that plot has happened in several sitcoms through the years, probably cribbed from this one, honestly. Um, so it's like you know, little John Bonet, and is that okay? 
and then the second sort of plot deals with uh, Julia and uh, Suzanne attending the beauty contest and overhearing uh, another contestant say something terrible. And one of the things I find so interesting about this is for Suzanne, the ar- the, str- the struggle or the arc is, is that am I too old to be considered right. beautiful anymore? Which because is so- she's about to turn 30. Like that's the underlying thing on the episode. It's her birthday. And what- She's about to turn 30. She says 29. And I feel, and I think, you know, we've talked about this, but you know, in the gay community, is there like an expiration date? Is there a date when you like turn 30 or 35 and you think to yourself, I am not part of the young, hip, gay world anymore? Certainly in Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. So what, t- t- yeah. What, what's your song, Robbie? Legally Dead in Hell's Kitchen. That's true. <laughs> you go in, they give you a, what, a toe tag and a drink? And yep. Blockheads just hands me a bill and a toe tag. It's great. <laughs> But it's but you know, and that's something that I think as a gay man you can relate to because I think there is a moment where you go, Oh my god, I'm now in a different category. I never thought I was gonna be in this category before. You know? I mean it was I w- I was surprised a couple of years ago when someone was flirting with me. Thank you so much. Um and they said, You're a daddy. And I was like, What? <laughs> what? How did I get to that? I'm I'm not even 40. How did I get to that? So to watch her go through it. Yeah. I, even though it's dealing with this female identity of I, I've got a shelf life, as a gay man, I go, oh, my God, no, I recognize exactly what she's talking about. Any thoughts about that? The, one of the significant things about the second episode, I, I, I'm glad you picked it, too, is it really sets the tone for the whole show, uh, more so than the pilot. Um, pilots, they're just to introduce everybody. This yeah, show, they set up the world. Yeah, they, yeah this one is like, the, you know, we're going to see a lot of these speeches coming in, uh, you know, future episodes. The second episode really does strike the tone. And being new to this, being new to this work, because I'm, I'm discovering it new. I, what I was so impressed by was on the second episode, you felt that these women had known each other their entire lives. There's such a casualness. They definitely all them. feel like friends, which, yeah. you know, when you watch Sex in the City, those people aren't friends. They would never hang out together. But these people would, for sure. And a lot of it's casting, but a lot of it's the writing of it. Yeah. 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 I mean, her, her writing is impeccable. And you're right. It re- they have four very distinct, distinct voices. So let's talk about this, what do you call it, a Terminator speech? The Terminator speech, yeah. <clears throat> Why is this such a huge part of, of our community. Why is that the night, this is the night the lights went out in Georgia. Why is that something our community can just, quote uh, at the drop of a hat why do we feel empowered by that maybe because a lot of times we're in situations where we have to bite our tongue Mm. it's sort of uh wish fulfillment where somebody gets to say what's actually on their mind Mm -hmm. and uh and that's been the case for decades and what i think is also so interesting about that monologue i think from a gay perspective is it's a young person laughing at someone who paved the way for them going well that's just pathetic you know, she, time. she used to, do, how silly is she? What the hell is she doing? And you see that yeah. at bars today still, you'll see an older person walk in who was paved away and everyone sort of rolls their eyes. Now, that episode is genius and brilliant. Let's talk about the second episode you picked, mm-hmm. Robbie. Can you tell us a little bit about this one? Yes. It's called Killing All the Right People. Uh, the episode has the core four, but by this time, Meshach Taylor has joined the cast and he is their delivery person. Uh, who has uh, previously been incarcerated for, he calls it his unfortunate incarceration uh, for a crime that he didn't really commit. He just happened to be an accessory to that he didn't realize. And uh, special guest star, um, the brilliant, brilliant uh, Alice Ghostly as Beatrice, who uh, she's nuts. I, I am convinced that Alice Ghostly, Paul Lynn, and Charlotte Ray were all put up for adoption by this. the same part. person. That's the uh, same person. That's, yeah. that's all I'm going to say. I would love to just see them sing triplets from that film. <laughs> Great. Uh, anyway, so Killing All the Right People is uh, about uh, a young man named Kendall, who's played by Tony Goldwyn, who uh, comes to the agency because he wants his funeral designed by them 
uh, and the funeral, the, the funeral home room designed by them because he is dying of AIDS and because uh, then the room can keep being used by people who are dying. This was the first sitcom that dealt with the plague um, and uh, caused quite a stir. Uh, and then there was a, uh, there's another woman who overhears them, uh, him talking to them. And uh, she, she says, she sort of, she says, well, yeah, uh, this, this plague is killing all the right people. I'm glad it's happening. And um, Mrs. Salinger is the character's name. And Julia says, one of my favorite lines in the show, I'm going to have to ask you to move your car because you're leaving. <laughs> um, setting that up. And the twin uh, parallel in that episode uh, is Car- uh, Carlene. Nope, not Carlene. Uh, Mary Jo, uh, her PTA, the PTA of the school oh, that yeah. her children attend, are, are having a, an argument about uh, teaching safe sex and giving condoms out and whether or not that's okay. So, so that's the episode. And so, it ends with sweet Tony Golden's character dies and he, the, you see the funeral. That's the, how the episode ends. And once again, what I find so interesting about the structure of this episode is that normally you'll have a very, like, I feel like him coming in and saying, I want, I, I want my funeral planned would be one plot line in a traditional episode. And then there would be something fun and flimsy to yeah. be the B plot for the episode, right? Like, you know, you know they structured Del- this like it's the love boat. There were two <laughs> plots going at the same time. <laughs> and like, De- you know, Delta Burke was going to like, you know, join a competition for nail polish, like some, something odd like that. Just play and around they, with and their pet And they're pet. like, no, the B plot's going to be about should there be sex ed in schools? Mm-hmm. They're not giving the audience a break. Julia's speech to this hypocritical, holier-than-thou woman who feels it's God's punishment that these people are dying of this, mm-hmm. um, she eviscerates the woman and, and reveals her hypocrisy. And... Um, it, it, it's a great speech. Uh, and I, I got I when I was told by you, Rob, that we were going to talk about this episode, I looked up when it aired and I was shocked. I was like, oh, it's got to be fifth or sixth year of the show. And it was in second season. And mm-hmm. 1987. Yeah. And I mean, that was very early on. Um, it, we're talking about Rock Hudson, who passed basically a year or so before that. Um, so we're, and he's the one that sort of brought this into the- uh, He became the face of- Yeah. 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 So- for Like Tom Hanks is the face of Corona. Right. Right. <laughs> for, for a television sitcom in that time to tackle this subject, I mean, for any television show, but a mm-hmm. sitcom, no less, to, to deal with it. And so frankly, and with such a point of view- Absolutely. Uh, well, that happened because Linda's mother died of AIDS. Uh, and so she wanted to write about it and and give it a face um, and give it a platform. And I had heard that she, when she was in the hospital, she heard she overheard a nurse saying that, you know, AIDS is killing all the right people so that the line is actually from something she overheard from a nurse that was administering um other AIDS patients in the war because her mother got through a blood transfusion. Yeah. You know, and now Golden Girls, and we love the Golden Girls, and we will talk about the Golden Girls. Yeah. Well, the Golden Girls gets a lot of credit because they did the episode, I think, in 1990, where the Rose, year, the next year. So they did oh, it the in next 88. Year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, where Rose it might be uh, HIV positive because she's had a, you know, a blood transfusion. So the uh, Golden Girls gets a lot of credit, but this is, I mean, this really paved the way. And yeah. you're, de- you're seeing the character. He's an openly gay character. He's not played, you know, flamboyant, you know, in any sort of stereotypical manner no. whatsoever. There's a lot of bravery. And I'm wondering if there was any pushback from CBS going, what the hell are you doing over there? I'm just curious. You have to wonder. Although it was such a, it was a hit. So they probably weren't as hands-on. You know, like if Different Strokes season one was like, oh, I'm going to tackle AIDS. I don't think it, it that I feel like the, they would jump in more. And just very quickly, I want to mention, you know, at this time, the president had only said AIDS once in public 
1985, once in public, and then in 1987, because Liz Taylor was pushing him along, and she, she was an mm-hmm. old friend of his. But can you imagine that you're getting your sex education about this virus, this plague that's killing people, from a television show? Because the government's not doing anything well, about it? Keep in mind, too, there was no internet. There was no social no. media. Right. So yeah. we, were, we were getting it from, yeah, it was on the evening news, and it was on... Uh, uh, on there was a handful of movies that were made about it for tv at that time and uh a handful of television shows and that's it and so and there was so much misinformation at that time too and we're still having almost 40 years later we're still having the same debate we still have Mm -hmm. people that think that you know it's right for gay people to be punished and killed we still have people going no there shouldn't really be sex education abstinence is the only way and we're not going to talk about it it's it's surprising to me because i was i'm thinking that maybe when they wrote this they're like this will encourage some sort of change and i'm sure it did but now it seems like we're regressing again so just pre-aids there was there were hints that presence of gay characters on shows was becoming a little more predominant and um we were the gay community was kind of making inroads in that area uh there was this show called um love sydney with tony randall where it wasn't overtly talked about that he was gay but he he was gay and tony randall or sydney (laughs) sydney and um that the other thing is another subject <laughs> for another, another podcast. But um, but Di- the first season of Dynasty, they have a great speech in the pilot of that episode with uh, Stephen Carrington telling his father he's gay, and the father just rips him to shreds and has this horrific homophobic speech. And it was for that time, it was like, my God, this is very uh, ahead of its time. And as the show went on and the AIDS crisis uh, got more prevalent, that character suddenly married a woman. It was he wasn't gay; he was bisexual. Oh, they sort of uh, whitewashed the the character, and um, it, it it the the original actor that played it quit the show because uh, he didn't like the way the, the direction the character was being written. Well, that's really that's interesting brave. because Meshach yeah. Taylor's character. Um, was ambiguous at best and uh, probably Anthony. gay. Right, Anthony. But by season seven, he ends up marrying uh, Cheryl Lee Ralph, of all people. Spoiler for you, uh, Rob, because you have <laughs> she, sho- she shows up? She not only shows up, does she, she does a musical number in her first... She's a Vegas showgirl headliner who marries him in a drunken stupor and they stay together. I'm sorry, gentlemen, I have to go and watch Cheryl Lee Ralph. Please forgive me. She sings a song called Get My Boogie Down. You're welcome. (laughs) So, but so like you were saying, he was um, probably gay. I would think, I think Anthony was gay. Mm -hmm. um, Oh, yeah. Who ended up married. And Soap did the sort of the same thing, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, you're right on Soap because on Soap, he started off openly gay having yeah. an affair with the football player. And then he had a kid and he got married to a woman. And that, that was odd. That felt odd the, to me. The gay washing. Yeah, the gay washing. Where, mm-hmm. Why does that happen? Obviously, the country is accepting the character. So why is it all of a sudden everyone gets nervous and goes, uh-oh, we got to switch? Well, I think, I think in the 80s, it was the AIDS crisis mm. that made them nervous. And they, so that, you know, they shut the door on that and that topic and uh if you were from that point forward for many years if you were gay you either were afflicted with aids or it was some tragic character yeah um, it wasn't uh just you know integrated in the plot like you know yeah yeah like you know something like will and grace where they they mm. seem happy and content yeah. and well they, i know my the, own the fact that they were gay is secondary to yeah them. yeah um so i what i was trying to say before was the Sorry. I wonder if the, I think the AIDS crisis united the gay community in a way that they wouldn't have been. But at the same time, I wonder in media, if it set them back in terms of their presence for sure, uh, for, you know, more than a decade. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's, but the fact that this guy appeared on the show, 
out, outwardly gay. And the fact that this actor played that role, I think Tony Goldwyn, that, that deserves a lot. Of yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, you know, there's so much controversy right now is, you know, if you're not a gay person, can you play a gay role? And I think what people forget is, is like you were saying, Paul, you know, in the 80s, this could have been career suicide for an actor like Tony Goldwyn, who, you know, the agents and the managers going, oh, my God, no, he's the gay guy. We can't have him. We can't have him. So son of Samuel Goldwyn or the grandson of Samuel. Oh, Goldwyn, of, of Samuel of Goldwyn. MGM. Yeah, yeah. But you're right. There is a bravery mm-hmm. in that, you know, and people I know roll their eyes and stuff and go, oh, you know how, you know, he's playing a. I mean, a different he still time. does gay roles, so he, he still just did in the inheritance I, on Broadway till it closed. It still exists. It does. Yeah. It, it does still exist. I was doing a movie uh, a couple years ago, two, about two, two and a half years ago, and there was gay content, but it was, it was PG. There wasn't anything that was explicit, or and we had an actor come in uh, for a read and said, uh, um, "I just have a question." Uh, should I play this gay or normal? Oh. And, you know, I'm like, okay, that was, <laughs> that was an interesting way to put it. Uh, and so I, I realized that, God, we've come, come a long way, but there's still a long way to go with the perception. And I have, actors are reluctant to play gay till they'd rather, they'd play a murderer or a rapist or, but if they play, they're really afraid of playing gay. I, I, and again, I think it's less and less, but I'm sure. surprised at how much that still exists. I definitely and remember, I'm, Sean Hayes did a film um, right before Will and Grace called Billy's Hollywood's Green Kiss, mm-hmm. where he was not an out actor and would not come out uh, in the press, but he was definitely like, it was a very gay uh, film, a very gay role. Um, and he sort of made a career of only playing gay roles, but it took forever for him to come out because he thought it would be career suicide. Same thing sort of with Nathan Lane a little bit. You know, um, he was on a very famous episode of Oprah where it was very clear she was trying to get him to say that he was, mm-hmm. and he found ways around it. Um, you know, I'm curious, Paul, because you're more involved in this than, than Robbie and I are. Are there a lot of people still in Hollywood that are gay behind closed doors and are afraid to come out because the public might say this, no, we don't buy it. The glass closet. The glass closet. Yeah. Uh, sure, sure. Um, and I think, I think it's, it's, a lot of it is too, is not, not necessarily public perception. I think it is sort of an internalized homophobia that's within the, the industry that still exists. And, um, you know, that's unfortunate. But, um, but it's gotten much better. I don't sure. want to paint a, a bleak picture. It no, is, no, no, no. In the 21 years I've been in, in this, it's, it's significantly better. I remember I was working at a talent agency at this time. It was the first year I was out here in 99. And um, Queer as Folk, mm-hmm. it just premiered in England. And um, there Which was a copy. better of, version of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a copy of the DVD floating around and I took it home one night to watch it. And this is before it, it aired here. And I was stunned at how um, explicit it was. I thought, oh my God, this is... And then came word that Showtime was going to do a version of it. And I thought, there is no way in hell they're going to they're gonna get away with putting this on. And, uh, and to their credit, they did. And I subsequently, years later, worked with a producer who used to be the head of Showtime. And he said what a struggle it was to get that show on the air. And oh, he wow. said, we literally, we were getting no submissions from agents uh, because of that very reason you were saying, career suicide. They thought we, our client will never work again if they do this show. And he, he had to pick up the phone and call agents as the head of the network, uh, oh. which is unheard of, and say, yeah. you've got to submit. And what I find interesting about that show is like Hal Sparks, who was one of the leads on the show, the very next thing he did was a dad on a Disney Channel show. So it had absolutely Mm -hmm. no uh, adverse effect on his career at all. It Um, honestly only did great things for his career. Absolutely. And Talk Soup was done. 
yeah what was he doing yeah and randy harrison has had a really good stage career mm-hmm. since and that show patrick page has just written a, a film that's on hulu yeah they're all out there and it's working a- yeah, sharing you know. bus is always sharing class, so that's great. But you're right. It's like the internalized homophobia sort of outweighs the fact that the public has moved. I mean, the fact that, you know, Ellen can have the number one daytime talk show. Neil Patrick Harris can play this serial womanizer in How mm-hmm. I Met Your Mother. That, you know, the public is, the public can do it. You know, it's, so it's yeah. Do you have a problem with straight actors playing gay roles? I mean, uh, it, you know, acting is acting. And, um I think you need to find the best person for the part. I and agree with that's, you. That's the way it is. And, you know, um, and if the character is gay, of course I will bring in gay actors that are, you know, but uh, the best person should win, should win out. That's the way it should be. It's not always the case, but sure. that's the way it should be. Anytime I see like a casting and announcement happen where a, uh, straight actor is playing a gay role there's some kind of uproar on social media about it but I agree with you that it should just let actors act I, I mean I don't know if you guys agree I think it's more important for the story of our community to get out there mm-hmm. um, I'm not really so concerned as who's playing the story who's telling that story or who's enacting that story I want that story out there it does are not- a vessel so Exactly. I, it does not bother me that Eric McCormick is not a gay man. The fact that we had a show about gay people in a positive light on For national 11 television, seasons. that mm-hmm. to me is more important than who does Eric McCormick sleep with when he goes home. Acting, like I said, acting is acting. The best actor uh, uh, should, that, that should be the rule of thumb. Who, who's best for the role should get the part. And uh, Go ahead. Okay, so let's talk about Designing Women five seasons in, and suddenly Delta Burke is let go from the show uh, because she is unhappy uh, and says what? so in a bunch of interviews. She was unhappy was she with unhappy? the writing. She was unhappy with the writing of the show, apparently, and so CBS let her go. And they, and at the same time, uh, uh, not Annie Potts, uh, Jean Smart. Uh, wants something else. She's just, uh, she says, I've done this for five years. I would like to try something new. And so she decides to leave the show as Delta Burke is uh, making her exit. And so they bring in uh, Jan Hooks as her sister, Carlene, Charlene's sister, Carlene, who also has uh, Marlene, Darlene. They have Arlene. Arlene, I think, is one of them. <laughs> She's got a lot of sisters, and they all have an Arlene of some sort. Very good. Uh, and then poor Allison Duffy. Or Julia Duffy. Julia Duffy. Duffy. Poor Julia Duffy. Man, was she screwed from day one. So season six, or season five, no, season six. Season six begins with Julia Duffy coming in, uh, having bought out the shares of Suzanne Sugarbaker. And she's going to rule the roost. That lasts a season. Um, the audience hates her so much that she exits stage left and Judith Ivy comes in and takes her place. All the while, uh, <laughs> Alice Ghostly as Bernice is just like, like climbing that uh, roller coaster of crazy, uh, falls in love with Anthony and keeps singing black man, black man, where did you come from? Anytime she sees him insane gets plastic surgery at one point that makes her look like Miss Piggy. Um, And then the show is canceled. And so their final episode is a two parter. They don't know it's their final episode where they all dream that they're Scarlet in gone with the wind. Oh, a dream episode. I love a dream episode. That's how the entire series ends. And then in 95, uh, Linda Bloodworth Thompson and uh, Delta Burke have made up and they revisit Suzanne Sugarbaker with a sh- very short-lived show called Woman of the House. On Hulu, Women right? of the House. No, a- Amazon? Uh, it's on Amazon now, yes. Okay. And it's uh, her husband has died and she takes his place in the Senate. 
mm-hmm. and Terry Gar is her press secretary. Oh, so, yeah. I love a Terry Gar vehicle. Good, good, yeah, it was Patricia Heaton's in that. Mm-hmm. And oh, cast, yeah. I haven't seen that one. Well, uh, the first episode ends with her lip syncing to, and I'm telling you, I'm not going. Robbie, do you think Alice Ghostly was like manipulating all of this behind the scenes so she would have a larger part? Like she went Here's up. Here's what I'm going to say to you. <laughs> that role was not written for her. It was written for Dodie Goodman, who turned it down, and thank God she did. Is that true? Yes. And I've I've read about it in a wonderful book called The Q Guide to Designing Women, which is written by Alan Crow uh, and probably available on Amazon. Uh, It goes episode by episode with just little tidbits and backstage stuff. Fascinating book. But yeah, Alice Ghostly is insane in the show. And those of you that don't know who Alice Ghostly is, if you were a fan of television in the 60s and 70s, she was on every show. Yes. Uh, Probably most known as Esmeralda, the klutzy witch on Bewitched for Mm -hmm. the last couple seasons of that. But she was absolutely batshit crazy brilliant. uh, (laughs) Yes. She, the... They, I think they explained it with whether she had like a stroke or something that something like that. She was a friend of Suzanne's uh, mother. Yes, uh, Plucky or what the heck was her? Pinky? Her mother's name was Pinky, and uh, eventually Pinky goes off to Japan, and so they sort of take care of her day to day. Um, And wow. She's, I just I just picture her going up like to the craft services table to like Julia Duffy and go play her like a bitch, and then like they get rid of her and she goes more time for me. That's how that I'm she's imagining just it. Charlotte happening. Ray for you, just down the octave. It is. It yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> May I say something about Jean Smart very quickly? Please do. I because I was doing research because I am new to this. Am I getting to keep yeah. my gay card now that I've watched a few episodes? I, well, do, would you watch more is the question. Yes, the answer is yes. Great. That's do you love when she answers the phone and takes off an earring every time? Well, it's what I do as well, so I felt the kinship. <laughs> um, I read, this is this is for all of us, I read that Gene Smart was not a fan of the very special episodes of Designing Women. She said, look, a, a TV comedy should be a TV comedy. It should be there to entertain. It shouldn't be there to educate. So... I, a product of the very special episode of the 1980s, I have to ask both of you, it does not have to be Designing Women. What was your, on a very special episode of blank, what was your favorite? Punky gets stuck in the freezer, in the, in the refrigerator. That's mine too. That is mine too. <laughs> Punky? Punky? I was always, I, the only or thing. Or the could, different strokes with the bicycle shop. Oh, Gordon Jump owning that bicycle shop. That was that was creepy because I'm like, you should be running WKRP, sir. You should not be in the back of that bicycle shop. That makes everyone uncomfortable. What Paul, about did you, you, Paul? Did you have a very special episode? Well, the one that comes to mind is uh, the, the episode of All in the Family, Edith's Birthday. Oh, my God. What a brilliant piece of and, and acting, it was, writing. It was, a, it was about an attempted rape. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and it was a two-parter, and uh, David Dukes played the attempted rapist. And the actor David Dukes, not the clan right. member David no. Dukes. Yeah, there was an actor. <laughs> um, that would have been a, an interesting. <laughs> Hold it, Norman's really and, pushing the envelope. That was gutsy. Uh, <laughs> so uh, no, there was an, a very fine actor that uh, passed away. Uh, yeah, young. He was a young guy. Yeah, young. But he he played this role, and um, it, he tried to rape the character of Edith, who was a beloved character. But uh, that show was known, though, for I mean, I don't yeah, know, yeah. How it would stand out from other shows because it was so politically controversial, and it, they hit every hot button topic of that era. Well, if we were gonna reboot Designing Women today, yeah, who who would you cast? Who would you cast in in these roles? Who are some of the actresses working today that you would like? Oh yeah, that could, she could be the new Julia. She could be the new Charlene. God, there's so many brilliant actresses that are in that age range today. It would be hard to to point to one, uh, you know. And um, if, go ahead. I was gonna say if I could get any show that had like Laurie Metcalf, Allison Janney, Stalker Channing, just put them all. They're all Julias, but I don't care. Maybe we'll just call it a house full of Julias. Julia. Julia. <laughs> Sorry, Diane Carroll. It's yeah. now it's now called. 
Yeah, the, uh, Judith Light. Oh, Judith uh, Light. Yeah, That's a great idea. What do you think it is about um, these shows with these strong women that draw gay men to them? I think there's just a kinship to the, the there's a relatability to them that they're minorities uh, and uh, they're outsiders in some ways and trying to prove themselves in a, in a man's world. And uh, I, I just think they're sort of um, the underdog thing. Uh, I, I think that's really what it is. Uh, is overcoming obstacles uh, and women still are fighting for that. Yeah. You know, this, this is that, that was so interesting. How about you, Robbie? Uh, I, I think it's strong women. I think we see ourselves in strong women who stand up for themselves and uh, uh, watching, because I just did a full rewatch of the of Designing Women a couple months ago watching Charlene turn from mousy Charlene who's in the pilot into like a Julia Jr. sort of and grow and in in her power um mm-hmm. and as a young gay man that's something I would have gravitated to 100% because I would want to be like her uh she, that's why yeah can I just touch on the the re, the uh, the cast changes a little bit. Yes, please. In the last few years. I think Julia Duffy gets a raw deal. Um, I, I, her, her character was written so obnoxiously that yeah. Meryl Streep couldn't have softened her. And uh, Julia Duffy's a brilliant comedic actress. She had yes. a long run on Newhart. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they had a clear understanding of what the, the character was or what her what she was about. I think they wanted an, an arrogant, abrasive character to replace the Suzanne character. And um, I think people were upset that Delta Burke had left the show because she was so popular and there was so much in the tabloids about it that she was sort of the victim of all of this. And Delta was the only person to be nominated for an Emmy in the yeah. show... Uh, other than Alice Ghostly and uh, Meshach Taylor. She was the only one of the core women who ever got a nomination. And she was getting the most publicity of anybody. And so I think there was a lot of that. And she she had the unfortunate task of sort of feeling, it wasn't the same character, but it was the same character type. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, Jan Hooks, I just want to, she was hysterical. Mm-hmm. She did the last two seasons of the show God bless her. She passed too soon. She was a brilliant comedic actress. She played. She yeah, she died. Yeah. When did she die? Yeah. A few years yeah. ago. Yeah. Because uh, uh, I always think of her now as Jane Krakowski's mom on 30 on, Rock. Uh, 30 Rock. And she's yeah. so funny but on that. God damn, what a brilliant comedian she yeah. was. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, oh, that makes my heart sad. Yeah. And so she, she really, she took the the character and she gave her a, she was internally optimistic mm-hmm. kind of dim-witted but incredibly likable and um i i liked that season i thought they really did some fine episodes that season mm-hmm. and i felt like they could have fixed the julia duffy character with an episode or two just and and ultimately the show went off the next year so it wasn't you know, they put it in a death slot in its final season. What is a death slot? Like where? Friday nights. Uh, it was mm. Friday night was a, de- that was killer back Un- then. Sure. Until TGIF came along. Yeah. Everybody yeah. went out on Friday nights. So mm-hmm. it was yeah. nothing but babysitters watching step by step. Yeah. So they had moved it from Monday at 930 mm-hmm. to Friday nights. I think it was nine o'clock and it just, it, went down the tubes yeah. in its last season. That was interestingly, the uh, one of the leads, lead-ins for that was Golden Palace, the Golden Girls spinoff. Oof. So they let off the night because they had switched networks and went to oh, CBS. Oh, yeah, they jumped to CBS. Yeah, that's right. They, they left and, NBC. Uh, that, they thought they had like a hold on that night and it, it ended up tanking. Yeah. So, um, oh, that's With good reason. Golden Palace is not 
nearly as good as the Golden Girls. Now, listeners, if you're interested, they've put the entire Golden Palace up on YouTube. So all 23 episodes are on YouTube. And I I binged it. Maybe you want some Don Cheadle in your life. It's Don Cheadle and Cheech Marin. And then they brought Miles back, but they made Miles an asshole. Like, how do you make Harold Gould an asshole? Usually, B. Arthur shows up, and those are the good episodes. Yeah, she shows up for like two episodes, and you're like, thank God, can't you stay? Yeah. Two, just two, (laughs) just two episodes. But that sort of goes back to what you said about the the four sides of the compass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Out of there, and it doesn't work. It happened with with this, with designing women. I think we've also learned that three's not enough. Oh, sorry, yeah. Spinoffs of shows with one character rarely work. Frasier is a very notable exception where a show goes off the air and they try to spin off something like Joey from Friends or, uh, yeah, or yeah, yeah. Rhoda, what ran three seasons, Phyllis ran for one, uh, the Rovers yeah. barely ran. Mm-hmm. Um, but Frasier is the one outlier in that sort of situation. It's yeah, four for- sides of a compass, and when you only have three and Don Cheadle. It's not as good of a show. Or if you only have Suzanne Sugarbaker, because I just watched all of Women of the, of the House, not as great as Designing Women. Well, some characters are supporting characters. Mm-hmm. And they're not, they're not meant or written to be like, the, you mentioned Phyllis. Yeah. Uh, Cloris Leachman, who is unquestionably a brilliant actress, both yep. drama and comedy. But that character was so abrasive. Mm-hmm. And... And uh, just a, a, truly a, like an obnoxious character. And she was brought in uh, to kind of stir the pot on Mary Tyler Moore uh, in various episodes. And she won Emmys for Mary Tyler Moore. But they then they spun her off into her own show and tried to soften her. Um, you think they did that because she won an Oscar? I think that probably had something to do with it. And yeah. Yeah. Honestly, well, listeners, there's nothing funnier than watching uh, her uh, as uh, Wonder Woman's mother in the pilot of Wonder Woman. She's replaced every other episode. Is that of true? It. Cloris Leachman's yes. in the Wonder yeah. Woman pilot. Just truly biting her knuckles at one point. It is one of the funniest overacted scenes that I've ever seen committed to film. She was probably paid a lot of money. Yeah. I know for her. Uh, So, Paul, we play a game with all of our guests. And it's a fill-in-the-blank game um, from quotes from the two episodes you watched. We're going to see if you can can fill in the blank on these things. If you can't, great. If you can't, no worries. We're all going to play along. All right, Robbie, who wants to read the first first quote to Paul? I'll go first. Let me see if I can do a Gene Smart where she kind of falls off the word. Okay, great. <laughs> I love in the in the second episode in the beauty uh, contest where she's answering the phone and as she's like talking on the phone, uh, everything is just it falls off. Oh, this great! Oh, I can't believe it! <laughs> just like that, it's so good. It's it's really nuanced. Okay. okay, so this is the sex ed one, Paul. She's talking about condoms. Yeah. All right, great. here we go. I remember my daddy used to keep a whole bunch of them in his top dresser drawer. I got in so much trouble once because I blew them all up on my birthday. I mean, I was real confused about the facts of life. One time my parents were out of town and I crashed my bicycle into a wall and I couldn't find a Band-Aid. I showed up at school the next day with a blank taped to my forehead. What did she show up with taped to her forehead? Did she tape a condom to her forehead? Close. (laughs) A Kotex. She showed up with a Kotex on her forehead. Okay. This is Delta Burke. Mm -hmm. All right. I'll do my best Delta Burke. I can't really do it, but here we go. I'm just, I'm new to this, guys. I'm new to this. I'm really excited. You know when men use women's liberation as an excuse not to kill blank for you? Oh, I just hate that. I don't care what anybody says. I think the man should have to kill the blank. The bugs. I think men should have to kill the bugs for you. Okay, now, now, Robbie, give us your best Dixie Carter Terminator speech. All right, Paul, she's yelling and screaming at the woman who said it's killing all the right people. And she says, take it, Robbie. Imogen, get serious. Who do you think you're talking to? I've known you for 27 years, and all I can say is, if God was giving out sexually transmitted diseases as a punishment for shining, as a punishment for sinning, sorry, typing, (laughs) 
then you would be at the blank, blank all the time. The, the free clinic? Yes. Free clinic all yes. the time. Yes, he got yep, it. That's really good. Okay, yeah. here, okay. Now, I've one. got one. Let's see if you can get this one. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> he's turning the tables. Yeah, because I, I screwed up the first couple. Thrilled. Uh, Suzanne swept every category except blank, and blank is not something. Congeniality. Uh, yeah. Congeniality. Not, and congeniality is not something that uh, the sugar bakers prize. Yeah, that is. Or so hold in high esteem. We like. don't know how in our family. Yeah. And then just our, our last one. Ready for the last mm-hmm. one? Okay, this will go to both of you. All right? Great. I need, I'm going to need a number. It's very specific. Dixie Carter says, and you probably didn't know Marjorie. Did I do it right, Robbie? Is that how it goes? Marjorie. Marjorie. That yeah. Susan was not just any Miss Georgia. She was the Miss Georgia. She didn't twirl just a baton. That baton was on fire. And when she threw that baton into the air, it flew higher, further, faster than any baton has ever flown before, hitting a transformer and showering the darkened arena with sparks. And when it finally did come down, Marjorie, my sister caught that baton and 12,000 people jumped to their feet for blank minutes of interrupted thunderous ovation as flames illuminated her tear-stained face. How many minutes were they standing up applauding? It's 16 and one-half minutes. Not 16 and a half. 16 and one-half minutes. So and there you go. Uninterrupted thunderous yeah. ovation as flames illuminated her tear-stained face. And that, Marjorie, just so you will know, and your children will someday know, is the night that the lights went out in Georgia. Thunderous applause, 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 applause. Close up on Delta Burke crying because of the bright. No Emmy. Back to, no Emmy because she didn't win an Emmy. Once again, the winner is Candace Bergen for Murphy Brown. Paul, this has been an absolute blast. What a great education in television. Guys, Paul is one of the most respected casting directors in Los Angeles. He does such beautiful work. And if you are lucky enough to be in a room with Paul, it is an amazing experience. He loves actors, which is something that is a rarity in our business. Our listeners have homework for next week. Who do they have to look up? Who's next week's subject? Y'all, we are talking about the one and only male actress, Charles Pierce. Charles Pierce... Before there was RuPaul, before anyone, there was Charles Pierce. And he's got two spectacular specials uh, that were filmed, one uh, at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and one at the Ballroom in New York City. They're both on YouTube. Charles Pierce. Look him up. Wow, are you going to laugh. Tallulah! We'll see. All right. Till next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.